Let's open our Bibles again to the ninth chapter of Romans. Romans 9. I remember as a young man in my late teens, hearing a minister from Florida preaching through Romans 9 and calling it the great sifter. That you can take a whole lot of false doctrines and run them through the sifter of Romans 9, and they're going to get exposed there. And as we've pursued our course through this book and then this chapter, down through the 23rd verse, we do see a lot of that. So much emphasis is made today on man being of value and special in his own right, which the Bible denies. Any value that we have or the way that we're used for God's glory. And so much emphasis is put on the will of man, but Romans 9 puts all the emphasis on the will of God. As we sang in Electing Grace earlier, I hope you appreciated that while man's will and man's works are ruled out of salvation, the will of God and the work of Christ are the true basis for salvation. And we can see that so clearly here in Romans. We have one sentence before us. It's verses 22 through 24. I read it again to you and will comment briefly on what's remaining and trust the Lord to bless His Word to us by showing us how great a salvation we have and how we ought to be living for Him to make our calling and our election sure. Romans 9.22 What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. The question mark there at the end is not because Paul's asking a question or God is asking a question. It's a rhetorical device saying, since this is the way I do things, what are you going to question or say about this? Since you've barked your opposition in verse 14, and you've barked some opposition in verse 19, try this on. If you are not willing to submit to me as the potter, this is the way it's done. This is the way salvation occurs. What if God willing, and it goes on to describe what God is most willing to do. We left for our break, with the words in the 23rd verse, and that he might make known. Much more could be said on that, and I don't want to take the time. I appreciate Daniel's reading of the verses that he did from Revelation chapter 5, because it made reference to every creature blessing the Most High God, and that is what they were created for. And that is what we were created for, and that's what the reprobates were created for, And when we call them reprobates, we are not sitting in judgment on them. God has sat in judgment on all of us and provided a Savior for some of us by His mercy and grace to show the riches of His glory and also to show His wrath and His power. But we want to recognize that God, being infinitely and independently happy and perfect in His being without any creation, chose to create just to display and to reveal and to make known to His creation the attributes and and character traits of His nature. 
And that's what's being described right here in these verses. We have some character traits of his in the 22nd verse, which are wrath and power. And we have one in the 23rd verse, which is called, in this particular case, the riches of his glory. And we want to now answer, what does it mean, the riches of his glory? Before I do that, that he might make known, are there creatures in heaven that are such exalted beings that they're made with three pairs of wings and they don't sleep day or night and they constantly sing and declare and shout the holiness of God? And they're called the seraphim? When we look at that creature and we look at other creatures and we see what was the end of their creation? What was the purpose of God making the seraphim when all they do is sing, number six, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and which are to come. You can see where God is the object of their existence. And they are a higher and elevated order of beings than we are. So in my preparatory to you, I mentioned your destiny. Your destiny is the glory of God. And the, the more you realize your destiny is the glory of God, you can rejoice in everything He has done, is doing, and will do to you and for you. You will give Him glory and you will give Him thanksgiving for everything. I wish I was six foot or taller. I give Him glory. He sawed me off at five nine. I heard an amen back there. You know, every one of these little things, and listen, young people, it is so easy to measure yourself and compare yourselves among yourselves and wish you were this or wish you were that. God made you just the way you are, and He made you just the way you are for His glory and your profit in learning if you will learn His glory in the way you were made. You can learn and profit from it. And everything that happens to us, it's been delightful with Jennifer, though the surgery didn't turn out the way she had hoped we had hoped, she had prayed, we had prayed, we know that a Father in heaven sees the end from the beginning and sees perfect learning if we will but submit to what He does choose for us. And He chose something different, so we find every way possible to be thankful. And I've enjoyed trying to do that by thinking about every aspect of what's happened to Jennifer in the last... 13 days since she asked her son to take her to the emergency room 13 days ago, things have happened that we can give glory to God. You can see His providential care of her, even though right now she's not where we would like her to be, but we trust God. As I told her last night, God's given you a vacation whether you wanted one or not. Enjoy it. Relax in that bed. Follow the rules. Pick your favorite meal if they give you an option. Well, somebody with a gallbladder removed doesn't really care what the meals are. But just submit. And so we want to do that. We And we come to this verse, and it says that He might make known. He wants to make things known through your life and be thankful that He chose to make known the riches of His glory through you. Even us are the two words that start out verse 24. What are the riches of His glory? Salvation is for God to display His grace in saving wicked and rebel men from their deserved condemnation to an eternal inheritance of heaven's riches where he will make them, the former condemned rebel enemies, joint heirs 
with his only begotten and well-beloved son. That is the riches of his glory by two measures. There's four, and I want to quickly go through them. What does it mean, the riches of his glory? First and foremost, it's the abundant degree of gracious kindness to save us. How abundantly he provided salvation for us. Now here, it just says the riches of his glory. But what is his glory? And what does the Bible describe as the riches that he's given us? The first riches that he's given us is his grace. Because that is his richness. That he would bestow grace upon our race. That he would show mercy to us. If you flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, there's a reference there that we've already made, we've already looked at, but I want to look at it again and one close at hand. The riches of His grace, the riches of His glory. What is His glory? It is His grace. It is His mercy. And it's His glory. But I'm going to put that second. Because we were for prepared unto glory. There's a place that we're going and conditions that we are going to enjoy for eternity. But there is something that gets us there and they're embodied in the phrase vessels of mercy. So in that He shows the riches of glory to us, It's not just the glories of heaven. It's how He gets us there being the vessels of mercy because He had to bestow mercy upon us and that is the riches of His grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. There is a cross-reference showing us and we're... We're led to do this because we have the phrase vessels of mercy in Romans 9.23. We look at verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know, in, in the book of Romans already in chapter 2, we saw that God's riches include goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. Those are all aspects of our salvation. In Romans chapter 5, it said that the law entered. The reason God gave the law to Moses is for us to all know how bad we are. The law entered that the offense might abound. All you have to do is go back and read the commandments and find out that you're a sinner. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound because it's the riches of His grace that overwhelmed the sin and transgression that the law made manifest in us. And where sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness into life. So there's a reigning of the riches of God's grace overwhelming the sin and death that the law showed us to be under. If you're in Ephesians, look at chapter 1 with me. Let's let's flip back from Ephesians chapter 2 where we looked at verses 4 and 7, and back to chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Remember, Romans 9 said the riches of His glory. Well, what are the riches of His glory? The first aspect I want to share with you is His grace. His glorious grace. What are the riches of God's glory? What are some glorious attributes of God's nature that He shows His elect? His grace. And so here it is called the praise of the glory of His grace. In Ephesians chapter 1 and 6, in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of 
His grace. His grace is God's riches being poured out upon us. The idea that sometimes we get distracted with wanting a better house, a better ride, better clothes, or better this, or better that, or better schools, or more money, is so ridiculous in light of the riches He's already poured out upon us. We have our priorities entirely out of order to be thinking about those things even in the same universe as the riches of His grace that He has bestowed upon us. Look at verse 8. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This is part of salvation. The riches of His glory are His wisdom and His prudence in saving us the way He did. The song you just sang written by one of our members, Endless Wisdom, you know, has a basis right here in this verse. He has abounded toward us. God has abounded toward us, which is dealing with us richly in wisdom and in prudence to design such a wonderful plan of salvation where it's free to us and it completely pays the sin debt that we have before God through the sacrifice of His own Son. You know, the devil tried to kill the baby Jesus. He manipulated, and there are manipulating evil spirits behind governments. Daniel teaches us that. Herod killed all the children two years of age and under. So that there was weeping in the area surrounding Bethlehem. But the devil didn't get the Lord Jesus Christ. And like we just sang, childbirth was cursed in Eden. But even when childbirth was being cursed, a prophecy was made, and it's the first prophecy of salvation. The, the Lord said to the devil in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that the woman's seed is going to bruise your head and you will bruise her heel like the Catholics think with Mary. And Bob Jones University has in their art gallery of the woman standing on the serpent's head. Sorry, but the, but the Lord Jehovah said to the devil, the woman's seed is going to bruise your head and you will bruise his, a male pronoun, heel. And we just sang that. Thank you, brother. Childbirth was cursed, but it's by childbirth we got the special child in this universe that would grow up as the Son of God, and lay down His life for us. And death, which was the penalty given to us for eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, became the means of eternal life. Because that woman's seed died for us. Isn't that wonderful? Is that is that abounding wisdom and prudence in designing the plan of salvation? These are the riches of His glory, and we should delight in them. And, and uh, a verse that I mentioned in the first sermon this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, tells us that if we're called, when we hear the preaching of the gospel, we perceive in it the wisdom and power of God. So the gospel message of salvation, we recognize wisdom and we recognize power. A virgin birth takes a lot of power. Raising Jesus Christ from the dead, a lot of power. We see wisdom in the design of Jesus Christ and power in His presence at God's right hand forevermore, already in His glorified body. Secondarily, though, the riches of His glory, and if you want to put these in a different order, I don't really care. All I want to do is expand the riches of His glory as broad as I can make it and as full as I can show it. The riches of His glory include our eternal inheritance in a glorious world of perfect bliss, which is coming. We have already had in the 8th chapter, flip back a page, 
You should be have a finger in there at Romans chapter 9. But if we come back to Romans 8, do you remember the success of Sundays that we spent in verses 17 through 23 where we describe the change that this whole creation is going to be, go through? This whole creation is going to be changed. Everything about this creation is groaning and travailing in pain together until now. We brought the pain on it with our sins. But animals suffer and animals die. Plants suffer and die. Everything is groaning under the weight of sin. But a day is coming in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to change the whole creation. And we spent a lot of time on it. Now I just read it to you. Verse 17 And if children, then heirs. If we're the children of God, then we're heirs of God. Because a child of a good daddy gets an inheritance. The Bible says that. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And God practices this himself toward us, so that if we're the children of God, we know there's an inheritance coming. And we are the children of God. Because it says, if children, assuming it's so of us, then heirs. Heirs of God. God is going to bestow His estate on us. And joint heirs with Christ. Is that incredible? How's that for the riches of His glory? We're not some second class child of God, and Jesus, our big older brother, is going to get everything, and we're just going to get the used car. We're going to be joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't want to demean what we're going to get in eternity, because it's glorious. And joint heirs, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. When you suffer for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are showing that you're one of God's children, is what that text is saying. For I reckon, here's Paul reckoning by the Spirit, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature. It's an earnest expectation. They're all waiting for the culmination of this great drama. And the culmination is the day of judgment. The day of judgment is going to be the most important day in the whole panel of history. In the whole drama. Because in the day of judgment, we shall be owned before the universe as God's children. It will be made manifest that we are the children of God. And He will declare us so. And Hebrews chapter 2 says, Jesus will not be ashamed to call us brethren. These are my brethren. Is that, that is incredible, brother. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's when you are going to be shown to the universe. The whole, the whole universe is waiting for God to tell the whole universe that you are his child. And when he does, The wicked are going to be cast into hell. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The devil's going to be cast in the lake of fire. The whole creation's going to be changed. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the effect of sin will be lifted off at all. We will not feel in our bodies. We'll have glorified bodies. We'll not feel in a new earth. It'll be a glorified new earth. And I've already preached all that, but that's the glory. That's the second aspect of the riches of His glory. And that he might make known the riches of his glory. You have never seen a good time. You have never seen a good sunset. You have never seen a good horse or a good looking horse. I don't care if secretary it was quite a horse. You've never seen anything the right way that it could be, should be, and will be when God rips sin off it. 
Right now it tells us that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Verse 22. It's called the bondage of corruption in verse 21. And do you know what we're waiting for? What also happens at that last day? All the bodies are going to come up out of the ground. All the bodies of the wicked, all the bodies of the righteous. Every single dead human body that's ever died is going to be raised. There's one resurrection coming. The wicked will be cast into hell. The righteous will be received into heaven. You will get your body back. That body's going to be glorified so that it will have the capacity to enjoy things right now that would incinerate you. When the Apostle Paul went to heaven, he saw things that were not lawful for him to utter. He couldn't come back and tell us. You wouldn't be able to hear it. He wouldn't be able to tell it. It wouldn't do you any good in this capacity. But you're going to be given a glorified body. I preached all that when we were in Romans 8. It's what it means in Romans 9 when it says that he might make known the riches of his glory. He wants to show you how rich he is. Oh, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And there's so much that can be said about it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it is called about our, our inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. And it fadeth not away. And it's undefiled. It doesn't rot. It doesn't get old. It doesn't spoil. It's, it's reserved for us. And we have an earnest of the inheritance. We have a down payment. We have a performance bond. We have a guarantee. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in us Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. We have an earnest of our inheritance. Now, if you're walking with the Spirit, you know that that is rich. If you're not walking with God and you don't know the indwelling, joy-giving presence of His Spirit, then you don't know what I'm talking about. And you're thinking that I've missed it or you've missed it. But I'll help you. You've missed it. Because the Bible doesn't miss. And I'm, I'm giving you the Bible. The earnest of our inheritance is the presence of God in us. Now, how close can you get to God in heaven? Well, on earth, He's in us. How much more do you... It's unbelievable. It's the riches of His glory. It's what He saved people to. I have to go on. The redemption of our body. We're waiting for the adoption of our bodies. Jesus suffered, and then He entered into glory. Do you know the Bible says that there are pleasures forevermore at God's right hand, right where Jesus is? Psalm 16 in prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, He was able to go to the cross and die the way He did because He knew there were pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. And we ought to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Despise the shame. He didn't, he didn't care that He hung up there naked. He didn't care what they did to Him. Even though in anticipation of God deserting him, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood because he saw the joy that he was going to have for eternity at the right hand of God and we're joint heirs with Christ. He has earned it for us. He has paid for it, but it's going to be bestowed upon us. I don't know what to say. The riches of his glory include the Gentiles being brought into the family of God in numerous Passages of the Bible. The riches of His glory include the intangibles of God's presence very close to us, being filled with all the fullness of God, as Ephesians chapter 3 describes. Now these upon whom God shows the riches of His glory are called the vessels of mercy. It's not because they're merciful. Now if you're merciful, 
If you're merciful, God's going to show you mercy. But that's not being taught here. When it says vessels of mercy, it's because God has made these vessels like a potter, and upon them He's going to show His mercy. Just like in the previous verse, the potter made some vessels, and they're called vessels of wrath, because God is going to show upon them His wrath. It's not that those vessels are bad vessels in being wrathful. It's that they are objects of God's wrath, just like the objects here are objects of God's mercy. We, by nature, are the children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3, which means naturally we are no different at all from reprobates. And by reprobates, what we mean is someone God has passed over and has purposed for their existence a completely different thing than for us as the children of God. But it calls us vessels of mercy. This passage where it said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, in reference to Jacob and Esau, and in reference to the eight sons of Abraham, and in reference to the Israel within the Israel, you know, now is being brought home. Now there's vessels of mercy, and the 24th verse is going to say, even us, because God has said, I will, toward you and toward me. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only because He said, I will have mercy on thee. We just sang that in a song, that if it wouldn't have been for God's grace and mercy, we wouldn't love Him to this day. He had to change our hearts. And we bless and we praise Him for that. By nature, we are just like the wicked. There's no difference whatsoever. The truth be told, we're probably worse. But God has saved us by His mercy. And so we're vessels of mercy. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory. Which he had afore, it tells us when he made this choice. Afore. You say, well, that's kind of vague. And I agree with you. Afore is kind of vague. All it means is before, in some previous time. But we know from going to the rest of Scriptures when he did it. He planned, he purposed, and he promised eternal life before the world began. Titus 1-2, God who promised eternal life before the world began. Who did He promise it to? Himself. Who did He promise it for? Those that He chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1-4. Those to whom He had given His purpose and His grace before the world began. 2 Timothy 1-9. So much so is this true that it says in Matthew 24, 5 and verse 34, when Jesus Christ welcomes the righteous into heaven, He's going to say, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A four. You say, well, all it says is a four. Well, that's why you got to read the rest of your Bible. That's why one of the rules of Bible study is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So that when we find out how... When were we first saved? When did God purpose to save us? When did He plan to save us? When did He promise salvation? And we go to those verses, we find out what a four means. From the beginning, God's chosen us to salvation, which is the text I began this second service with from 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Before the world began, God had purposed that in humanity there would be a group of vessels to dishonor fitted to destruction. They are in verses 21 and 22. There would be vessels of mercy upon whom He would show the riches of His glory. They are vessels of honor in verse 21. 
and they're the vessels of mercy in verse 23. And when did this take place? When did this choice take place? When did the design take place? When was Jesus Christ by covenant set up to die for us? Before the world began. If you want to go to our website and type into the search box at the bottom of the homepage, just type in the words, before the world began. There's a sermon there of everything God did before the world began. See, God didn't create Adam. God wasn't sitting around bored someday and decided to create Adam and Eve. They got themselves in trouble and he said, oh no. My kids got themselves in trouble. I need to get them out of trouble. There wasn't anything like that at all. The only reason God ever created this earth was to manifest in in two different choices for the fallen race that would result, His wrath and His power, and the riches of His glory. And there's so much that He did before He ever created Adam and Eve, and it's given to us in the Bible as the things from the foundation of the world. When was your name written in the book of life? When you wrote it? In the flyleaf of your Bible that you invited Jesus into your heart, you're a few years too late. Amen. And I, the Bible says they were written before the foundation of the world. Amen. Your name is inscribed on the palm of his hand, the Bible says. Listen, there has been you, your soul, since God created it and since God planned to create it, has never been in the balance. Right. There's an eternal phase where God has purpose to make you His child. A legal phase where Jesus Christ paid the price to adopt you. A vital phase where He gave you a new nature so that you can and will act like a child of God. A fourth phase when He sent you the news of a love letter that He had adopted you. And a fifth phase is yet to come where He's going to change these bodies and glorify us in His presence forever. All because it was purposed and determined and planned out with great prudence and wisdom in eternity. Verse 24, even us. Election is so personal. Even us. Don't, verse, listen, when we start at verse 14 and we work down through the posed questions and Paul's inspired answers, we can start to think that election and reprobation, these are just high and lofty, dusty theological doctrines. This is how God saves. This is why God saves, and this is who God saves. And those first two words are precious. Even us. And the even is not an extreme even like Proverbs 16.4 that I've taught you in recent weeks. The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That is an extreme example to apply a general point. That's not here. Even here just means namely, or exactly, or the ones under consideration, the vessels of mercy are us. Paul, the author, the Roman saints, called to be saints, elect of God in chapter 1, and us, the readers who believe the gospel like the Romans did. Even us, whom He hath called. The calling of God is God's ordination and appointment of us to eternal life. And I have worked this particular word over before, so I'm not going to do it now, and it is certainly in my outline right here. The calling of God is God's preparation and appointment and ordination of your vocation, of your calling, of your role in life, in the universe. That's what calling is. The Apostle Paul was appointed to be an apostle. The Apostle Paul was ordained to be an apostle. The Apostle Paul was called to be an apostle. Jesus just didn't ask Paul. 
Because Paul tells us that he had been separated from his mother's womb to the work of being an apostle. It wasn't something that on the road to Damascus, Jesus dropped a, a, a college handbook out of the sky and Paul sat there thumbing through an engineer, no accountant, no minister. Sure, why not? Let's take a stab at it. Nothing like that whatsoever. That's how most men get in the ministry. They're 18-year-old pups. They've never worked a day in their lives. They don't know very much at all. They go off to college. They hear a good sermon. This is a good thing. They get convicted, and they want to serve the Lord. So they look at the college handbook. I want to serve the Lord. And and their pastors and everyone tells them, well, the only way to serve the Lord is full-time Christian service. If you have any other job, you're basically a second-class Christian. You're almost a reprobate. At Bob Jones University, the joke that runs among all the students is that anybody that's not a Bible major is a reprobate. Now, they, they use it jokingly, and I use it jokingly, and it was used of me jokingly since I was an accounting major. Because that is this full-time Christian service thing. That if you're not in full-time Christian service, then you're really not serving the Lord. And so these men get into the ministry, and I'm talking about the word called. When God puts a man in the ministry, He prepares that man for it, even though the man may not want it. In the Bible, in fact, the great ministers in the Bible never wanted it. Moses didn't want to be the minister of God. Haven't you read Exodus 4 where he said, Listen, I don't like speaking in front of people. I get nervous. I get tongue-tied. I can't speak well. And the Lord said, Who do you think made your mouth? I called you to go. Well, since you don't want to go, I'll send your brother. and He can be your mouth for you. You can go in there and stand there before Pharaoh, and Aaron will do the talking for you. This is God reasoning with a man who didn't want to go. Jeremiah didn't want to go. Lord, have you read Jeremiah chapter 1, the first five or ten verse? Didn't want to go. Did Jonah want to go? Okay, you know that one. How about the Apostle Paul? Did he want to go? He said, if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. If I'm in the ministry because I want to be in the ministry, then I'm doing what I want to do. So I'm getting job fulfillment because I'm doing what I want to do. But if I do this thing against my will, then a dispensation of the gospel has been given unto me. All of that was to try to explain to you what the word calling means. It's not a college handbook that gives you the option. It's God fitting you in the heart, fitting you in the abilities. Bezalel was called to be able to produce the tabernacle with all that intricate furniture, intricate curtains, intricate uniforms and outfits and miters for the priests because God said, see, I have called Bezalel. Now that wasn't I've asked Bezalel if he'd like to do this. He's a trash collector by trade, and I want to see if he'd be willing to make the tabernacle. God told Moses, see, I have called Bezalel. All of that is to say... And I'm struggling with this because in theological circles, there's a general, there's a general call and there's an effectual call of the gospel. This is not the call of the gospel. This is God's calling. This is the calling of verse 11. Look at it. Verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It's an appointment. It's an ordination. And God appointed and ordained Jacob to be the father of the nation of Israel and to be his child. And he ordained and appointed Esau for the opposite use. So let's forget that point for right now. It means to be appointed. When the Bible says, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. 
Acts 13.48 As many as were appointed to eternal life, as many as were called to eternal life, believed. By comparing all the verses in the Scriptures. One more reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when it says that the preaching of the Gospel is to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks it's foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's the power and the wisdom of God. Well, I want to know what that word means to be called. Well, it goes right on to tell you. For ye see your calling, brethren. Ye see your calling by looking in a church. Ye see your calling that not many mighty, not many wise, not many rich are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise and, and foolish things and base things. And things that are of not to bring to not things that are. Calling is God's appointment and preparation and putting us in the role of being the children of God. And we are to walk according to the vocation wherewith we are called. We have been appointed to be the sons of God. He's worked in us to be like the sons of God. And we are to work it out with fear and trembling. But let's get to the real point that matters right here when it says, Even us whom he hath called. We need to ask the big question and answer it, am I called? Because if you are not called, you are in verse 22. Right. Vessels of wrath. Right. If you are called, you're in verse 23. Even us, whom He hath called. How do we know our calling? It goes right back to what I've taught you repeatedly. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. This is the big question. When we say even us, we know it's Paul, and we know it's the believing, saved saints at the church at Rome, but how can we squeeze us into it 2,000 years later in the Piedmont of the Carolinas? How? By making our calling and election sure. I'm glad that verse is in the Bible. It's 2 Peter 1.10, but I gave you 2 Peter 1.5-11. Peter said, Give all diligence to add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, Patience and the patience, godliness and the godliness, temperance and the temperance, brotherly kindness and the brotherly kindness, charity. Now listen, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. But give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. But an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not believe in salvation by works but we don't believe in telling salvation or promising or offering salvation to anyone without works because works is the evidence of salvation. You can't work your way to heaven. There's only one work that's been done to get you to heaven, right. and it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He finished it on the cross. Amen. But for us to know that we're saved is not some decision you've made for Jesus because the Bible says it is not of Him that willeth, nor of Him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. But how do we know that mercy has been shown to us and that we are the called and that we are the us and we belong as a vessel of mercy in verse 23? Those eight things. 2 Peter 1, 5-11. through 11. Isn't that wonderful that there's a verse in the Bible that says you can make your calling and election sure? When I read this verse, I want to make my calling sure. When I read verse 11, I want to make my election sure. When I read Romans eight thirty three, I want to make my election sure. When I read verses 29 and 30, I want to make my predestination sure. Not sure to God. Not sure in heaven. Sure to me. Do you know what? We can make it sure to each other as well. I don't flatter anybody by what I'm just about to say. 
when Jonathan Carnell was Velcroed down on a surfboard in the emergency room of Greenville Hospital System, having been T-boned, sitting in his SUV at a stop sign, we all rejoiced in the waiting room. Because since a child, he's proved to us that he was a child of God. I enjoy... No, I didn't mean that, Jonathan. Waiting rooms like that are not bad. That's not even right. It's still bad. But we knew that if he didn't make it, he was going to heaven. Because he lived the life of a Christian, a believer, his whole life. Oh, he knows his secret sins and so does God. Thankfully, we don't. And we don't need to. We know his overall character was a righteous young man. And it was a great time of rejoicing. We could pray in a different way without fear. We can prove that to one another. How can we do it? I have repeated these things to you because I never want you to forget them, especially those that have doubts about your salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2-4. through 4. This is the second place you go to if you want to prove to yourself that you're a child of God, that you're called and that you're elected. Paul said, knowing, brethren beloved, this is what he could say about the whole church, or the majority of the church at Thessalonica. Knowing, brethren beloved, your, your election of God for your work of faith. Your faith was not just a profession, but it changed your life. Your labor of love. You just didn't say you love the brethren. You love them by sacrificial service and by patience of hope. Your hope of heaven so governs your life that no matter what adversity or troubles you had, you cheerfully endured them because you knew that heaven was waiting. When you show that kind of faith that works and that kind of love that labors and that kind of hope that teaches patience, that's the evidence of a child of God. That is even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Notice those big prepositions of. Of means it wasn't all the Jews. It was only some of them. Of means it wasn't all the Gentiles. It was only some of them because out of that mass of clay of humanity, some vessels of wrath, some vessels of mercy. And this some vessels of mercy, the elect children of God, are some of the Jews, some of the Gentiles, and together we are the body of Christ. Most Arminians, and an Arminian is someone who believes you save yourself by exercising your own will, what I was raised in, what Bob Jones University teaches, and what 99% of Baptists teach today. They look at this passage and they know it's insurmountable, so they change the whole passage and say that Romans chapter 9 is only dealing with the national privileges of the Jews. That all it's talking about are national privileges of the Jews. But when we come to this 24th verse, it says, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only. It didn't have anything to do with a national Jew. It didn't have anything to do with a Jew with the right pedigree. It didn't have anything to do with an Israelite. It was only some of them, and it included some of the Gentiles that had nothing to do with Israel. Praise God, in this 24th verse is the evidence that we need to know what this chapter is talking about, that it's not talking about the national privileges of Israel. It's talking about the spiritual treasures of God's elect. It's, it's been my privilege and pleasure to preach to you the unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your kind attention. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And may we all make our calling and election sure.